Hello, I'm Lisa Morton. Thank you for listening to We Built This City. I wanted to share with you a special episode this week dedicated to the Greater Mancunians born, bred and adopted who have built this city and have been recognised through their acts of service. Friday 3rd of June is the Queen's Platinum Jubilee and will be celebrating the 70 years of Queen Elizabeth II's reign. That's 70 years of service to the nation. Over the last two years of this podcast, you've heard from so many Manx who have been recognised as MBEs, OBEs, Deputy Lieutenants, High Sheriffs, people who contribute to others. So I wanted to take a look back with you and reflect on the nature of service, commitment and values from those guests who have been recognised by the Queen. Receiving an OBE, an MBE or becoming High Sheriff or a Deputy Lieutenant isn't something that any of these Manx set out to do and it's easy from the outside seeing the award as letters at the end of a name. The reason why they've been recognised is because of the work they've done for others, for the communities and issues that are close to their hearts. So let's hear their stories, and I hope that these voices will inspire you to think about the ways this city can be made greater still. Vikash Shah is one of those voices, an entrepreneur, investor and philanthropist. He's a Deputy Lieutenant of Greater Manchester and an MBE, which received for his services to business and the economy. But as you'll hear, he's hugely motivated by helping others too. For me personally, I think there's an obligation to help where you can. And what that means is finding causes where you get passionate enough about it to do something because you know the, the non-profit sector is really hard work and there's different levels of engagement you know there was a study that showed that for a lot of people clicking like on a charity's page on facebook releases the same dopamine hit as actually giving some money but obviously it's not quite as useful for the charity right there's a lot of people who you use the same old mechanisms yet another ball yet another 10k whatever and that's fine and that's that's great but then I see it in the work that you do, you get really stuck in because you're passionate about the causes you support and you want to do something. And so you will put everything into that as much as you put into a business. And for that to happen, you've got to really care, right? And that could be because of a personal experience. It could be because you can't not see something. You can't unsee something. I spend a lot of my life traveling, particularly into the global South, You can't unsee the way people are treated. You can't unsee the way governments behave. You can't unsee the legacy of conflict and war. And if you can see that and not act, I'm worried. Mm. If you can see the poverty in Greater Manchester or anywhere and not act, I'm worried. Do you see yourself more as a philanthropist than an entrepreneur? Or do you think those two things sit very easily side by side? They're just words, aren't they? (laughs) They are. I didn't know I was an entrepreneur until somebody told me I was. I didn't know I was a philanthropist until somebody told me I was. They're just words. It doesn't mm. matter. I don't see myself as either. I'm just me. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's kind of helpful because those words are meaningless because we're here to do our best irrespective of what we do. And being an entrepreneur in inverted commas comes with so many different weights of expectation and behavior and you know like particularly here in the uk entrepreneurship culture is hyper alpha hyper masculine extremely toxic you know i, I don't want to be associated with 90 percent of the things associated with that word 
And then philanthropy is a spectrum too. You know, you've got people who just write big checks and walk away. You've got people who don't write checks and get stuck in. So, so I try and stay away from those words as much as I can and just be happy that I'm doing what I can do and what I should do. And Vikas continues to give back to Greater Manchester, not just philanthropically, but culturally too. This year, he's built on the launch of his book, Thought Economics, which came out during the pandemic. It's based on a blog he's been writing for the past 14 years. In it, Vikas has been interviewing an incredible list of the people who are shaping the century. I'm talking about everyone from Buzz Aldrin to Jimmy Wales to Maya Angelou and Matthew McConaughey. He's also become a representative for The Crown. In October 2021, the Lord Lieutenant of Greater Manchester asked him whether he'd like to become one of his deputy lieutenants. And as you'll hear, for Vikas, it's a role that he takes incredibly seriously for all the right reasons. The way it works is the Queen has representatives in each county and those representatives are the Lord Lieutenants of the county. And so people may have seen them at events in their uniform and so on. And then the Lord Lieutenant in each county has deputies because there's no way the Lord Lieutenant could undertake all the work. So the Lord Lieutenant, when they appear at something, is effectively, you know, the crown. And then when you as a deputy get asked to appear at something, you are also adopting that same protocol. So so it's really exciting. And I think the thing that I found most rewarding about being a deputy lieutenant is you just get to meet the most incredible people. You get to go and meet the charities in the community that are doing amazing work. You get to help recognize them and you help to nominate them for prizes. You you know, you get to go and do the citizenship ceremonies and be part of perhaps one of the most important days in, in, in people's lives. And And actually, when you're going to a community event representing the crown and you're attending and you're able to make them feel seen in a way which is really, really powerful. So it's a role which I take really seriously and one which I treat with what I would call extreme humility. When you approach any civic role, it's not about your ego. You're there to do a job. And yes, it is wonderful being a deputy lieutenant and it does make you feel good about yourself naturally. But the extreme humility is realising that you are there representing the crown representing your county doing a job on behalf of the lord lieutenant and it's not about you it is about the county and the crown and the organization that you're visiting another of manchester's deputy lieutenants is carl austin bairn it's incredible to reflect just how much times have changed since the coronation 70 years ago and if there's one city region that embraces change and progression it's greater manchester Carl was Manchester's first openly gay Lord Mayor, appointed in 2016. He's well known for championing diversity. He's also LGBT advisor to Andy Burnham. And the same year he was awarded Deputy Lieutenant, Carl was also awarded an OBE for services to charity, LGBTQ+, equality and communities. I remember going to to many of the the temples, the synagogues, the, the mosques, um, across across Manchester, and feeling completely embraced. And I remember going to an iftar and being with the imam, and we broke the fast. And I remember putting just something on Twitter, and I think it was the Guardian then ended up running a story about how multicultural Manchester was, the fact that how much it's embraced uh, the communities that, that we're all from, uh, that you wouldn't get in other parts of the country. And I think that was another thing that was so important, you know, having the opportunity as Lord Mayor 
to be able to go to these sort of places, going into schools and sort of even in faith schools and being able to sort of tell your story and 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 having people asking questions about sexuality and about gender, it just opened up so many more avenues for people to have those dialogues. You landed the role of the of Andy Burnham's first ever LGBTQ plus advisor uh, not long after, didn't you? How did that happen? That's right. Well, um, I think he just saw there was something there that knowing that across Greater Manchester, we've got such a high population of LGBTQ plus people. You know, when we break it down, there's over 210,000 people who identify as LGBTQ. And that's that's the size of Rochdale. So if we just sort of have someone to look after one one of their boroughs, I think he saw it as someone who would be able to engage, someone who would be able to listen, someone who would be able to make a difference to people across Greater Manchester. And we had conversation. And at the beginning, there, there was a little bit of resilience because of the fact that it would be a conflict of interest if I'd have still been a councillor. But then when I came off the council, obviously there was no conflict of interest. And and I just think, it, 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 you know, he saw something in and the fact that it's it's reaping the rewards as I do it. You know, I, I thoroughly enjoy what I'm doing. It's, it's hard work. You know, when, when even just doing it across Manchester when I was LGBT lead on the council, it was hard work. But doing it as a GM level, you, you've got some, so many different uh, complexities then as well. But it's so much rewarding knowing that you are making a difference. And even going to places like Wigan and going to Rochdale and, and, and covering those sort of areas, they now feel that they're being listened to on a GM level. And it's not just, uh, you know, we always talk about, in Greater Manchester, we always talk about everything being London-centric. Um, when you're in Bury or Bolton or Rochdale, everything's Manchester-centric. Um, so I think it was a great way of breaking down those barriers. And within that first year of, of my role, we managed to make sure that there was a Pride event that took place in all 10 boroughs, as well as local Prides. You know, I'm not taking any credit for that, but I'm saying I helped and I supported and I was able to give advice and, and to sort of and be there and to sort of show support, but on a GM level that they'd never had before. It's great to hear about Carl's experiences of showing the rest of the country what we know already in Greater Manchester, that we do come together and that we've got a proud history of breaking down barriers. When I first spoke to Carl, he had yet to receive his OBE. The ceremony had been delayed due to the pandemic, so I caught up with him this week to find out what that was like. When I finally got the opportunity to go to Windsor to, to receive um, my OBE, it was such a strange day because you sort of, you've geared yourself up and you don't know what to expect. And you, you stood there waiting and I was stood there with Air Vice Marshal uh, next to me because I had Prince William to give me my award. And I'd met William previously, but I then started talking to the Air Vice Marshal about other things. And instead of just facing William like you're supposed to do, I ended up turning to him and we were having this conversation. So then you're supposed to see when the person in front of you goes and your name gets read out. Anyway, the person had gone and my name had been read out and we'd missed that. And he's like, oh, you better go. So rather than marching forward, I just sort of sort of did this really sort of weird sort of movement to get in front of William. We sort of had a little bit of a smile at that. And then we ended up going back and started talking to, which I was talking to him about when he last came to Manchester, because I was Lord Mayor when he came to Manchester. We'd had this whole conversation before about, about being in the Air Force and about... 22 squadron then we got talking about the fact of being uh, dismissed out the air force for being gay the fact of how we've changed because obviously for my award was also to services for lgbtq plus communities 
And then we started talking about the charity Fighting with Pride and also the fact that on the Sunday, it was the Remembrance Sunday, so we're going back to, to November last year. And I was telling about the fact that this was, you know, going to be a really proud moment because it's the first time we've been able to march at the Cenotaph. Anyway, when you're talking, he talks with his hands and when he puts his hands by his side, that's when he's supposed to step back. But we both ended up talking with our hands and both having this really sort of longer conversation. And it just felt like I was there for such a long time. And eventually when you sort of come back and I sort of schooled off and got Simon and we went outside. What was really, again, so significant was having the, the conversation with William because of the fact that we'd met. But then, because it was Remembrance Sunday, I'd gone down to London for the parade. The Queen was supposed to do take the salute. However, because she had a bad back, William ended up doing the salute. And as we went past Horse Guards Parade, I eyeballed William because I was on one of the front rows, literally, and he gave a little nod, a smile, a little wink, and it was brilliant because it was just like he'd acknowledged the conversation we had and the fact that I managed to... sort. And it was a... You know, considering the fact that it was the first time that... LGBT veterans had been invited to march on the parade meant such a massive difference to all those around us as well and I think everyone everyone understood what that was about. That was a, a tear in my eye moment feeling extremely sort of proud feeling the fact that from where we'd gone 24 years previous to sort of being possibly being in prison for being gay back in the armed forces to sort of being on a parade being acknowledged and supported especially with the work that I've been doing as well with fighting with pride and the work that you know the LGBT Foundation and Stonewall have been doing to to make sure that veterans are welcomed back into the armed forces, especially LGBT veterans who did suffer pre two thousand. Joanne Roney is the first female chief executive of Manchester City Council. She first started working in local government in Birmingham when she was only sixteen. Fast forward a few years and in 2009 she was awarded the OBE for services to local government. Since moving to Manchester we've adopted Joanne as one of our own. For her it was pretty clear what she needed to do when she first took on that role. Well I guess the priorities were pretty set for me by members when I when I came here really and um, I remember, uh, you know Richard was really clear with me he said we want to we wanted to get the basics right. There were some real issues here. There was rough sleeping was one. Street cleanliness was another at the time. There were some, our children's services were failing. You know, our school entertainment results weren't great. <laughs> um, so the, the priority was Joanne put some attention into the council and get the, the, the basic services right. There was also the um, underlying issues around um, inequality, as I've mentioned. And uh, whilst Manchester has been incredibly successful, in so many ways, the real challenge was making sure that that prosperity was connecting to the right places mm -hmm. and the right people. So there was a, a job to be done that, particularly around skills. And I'm really pleased to lead on skills for Greater Manchester and work with Andy on that because it's part of absolutely me and my own journey. So I'm really passionate about that. Uh, there were other things about health and social care integration, improving children's. And then, of course, it was keep the prosperity going, keep keep the regeneration going. And, of course, you know, that, that thing about being judged and would I do that? So for me, one of the big successes has been that we have made progress, particularly around core services. When I first spoke to Joanne, we were in our second lockdown due to COVID-19. At the time, she was full of confidence that Manx would pull together to support each other. And she wasn't wrong. 2022 is our year in Manchester, a year of listening to young people who were so badly affected by the pandemic. 
It brings together key partners in the city to create more experiences and opportunities for children and young people. And Roland Ransfield is so proud to be a partner with the City Council in helping to deliver this. As you'll hear for Joanne, it's made real progress. So our year has been fantastic in that we said early on, as we planned to come out of the impact of COVID, we wanted to put young people at the heart of the city's recovery and beyond. And I think it's gone really well. Um, Particularly great to see how the Ambassador Programme has been out there uh, supporting and encouraging businesses and others to get involved in supporting young people. Um, This is about support by way of clearly job opportunities, but also uh, skill support, providing mentoring, just opening up employment to schools so people get proper advice around what careers do exist in the city, what opportunities are there. Um, And I think for me, uh, clearly, uh, the ability to receive funding from the the private sector businesses in this community that have enabled us to put on a whole raft of activities, particularly for some of our most disadvantaged children who had quite a terrible torrid past two years. The fact that businesses have responded in this way to put children at the heart of the city means we've got more things going on for young people in the city than we've ever had and more opportunities genuinely being shaped by what young people themselves are saying but also us being able to match those great opportunities that exist to the young people in the city. It is about do more of what we're talking about, really. We do need more businesses to reach out and have relationships with schools, to open the doors of business to young people, to make sure that we are offering work experience, that we can offer mentoring, that we can explain, take some time out to explain to young people what skills employers look for, what sort of jobs exist. And of course, I'm going to say, I'm conscious of the time that takes for businesses to spend time with young people. So for those businesses who think, I want to do something, but I maybe can't put the time in to taking on apprenticeships or creating jobs or creating opportunities, anything that by way of financial support to the Our Year programme does go directly into us being able to put on extra training, extra skills, extra time away to support the most vulnerable. So all of the activities that are planned over the summer and for the remainder of this year have only been enabled because of some of that support we've had from businesses. So, um, yeah, more of that, please. More pledges uh, and more commitment. Joanne, when we last spoke on We Built the City, you talked about the fact that our children's services were failing and that was going to be a priority for you. And since then, we've had some really good news on that score, haven't we? So, yes, first time in its history for us to receive good I mean, I'm incredibly pleased on that scale of achievement and huge respect to all of my staff and my colleagues who work in children's services. The Ofsted inspection is quite a rigorous process to go through and they're mainly focused on what are the impacts we're having on children's lives and what's the experiences of children who live in the city and what's the what's progress are children making. So to have acknowledged that we're good on those outcomes for children despite this being the most difficult of two years, despite this being an incredibly complicated city, many faceted dimensions, very diverse city. And yet what they said was for two years, 
you have made strong progress in a number of areas. Now, of course, there's still improvements. We're not shying away from the fact that not everything's perfect and there's a lot to be done. But I mean, I'm incredibly proud. And, and you know what stood out for me was how they acknowledged that it's the strength of leadership and the partnerships across this city that have focused on children that have made the difference. This isn't just the work that is done by my colleagues in the council. It's that reach across to all sectors, including businesses, but voluntary sector, communities themselves, parents, carers, young people themselves. They acknowledged the amount of work that's gone in to really making a focus on ensuring the future of this city is one that children benefit from. That what's the saying that some are born here, some are drawn here? Well, good services means those who are born here are going to get the best opportunities that are created in the best city in the world. One person whose work has broken down barriers is the poet Lem Say. Lem was awarded an OBE in 2009 for his services to literature and charity. He first made his name through grassroots poetry collectives in Manchester in the 1980s. Lem's words have become part of the city through his landmark poems, poems that have been painted on the sides of buildings. But as you'll hear, it was through cleaning gutters that he first got to publish his first book of poetry. Yeah, yeah, Aswad Gutter Cleaning Service. <laughs> that book of poetry you said was your bridge to Manchester. Yeah, what did you yeah, mean by that? Yeah. Well, I, I brought it to Manchester. I did my first reading because of it at the Abbasindi Cooperative in Moss Side. I took it to Common Word, which was a community publishing house in Manchester. Mm. Because, you know, all of these events and venues and stuff, they don't happen without a groundswell of energy and respect for grassroots, whether it's grassroots music, whether it's grassroots poetry and stuff. And this was a common word, was a grassroots organisation whose job was to promote, support and encourage writers who otherwise wouldn't be published. Mm. Women writers, gay writers, Mm. black writers, working class writers specifically. And in fact, the working class nature actually goes through all of those different those different uh, sort of uh, definitions. And so I went into Common Word. I took my book with me, and within a year, I was working as a literature development worker in Common Word. I applied for a job, and I got it. Mm. But what I had was boundless energy absolute focus and I was committed you could see that in the book you know so I took that to the job interview and I got the job and and years later I looked back at the inside the filing cabinet which looked at all of the other applicants and they were all degree this degree that university of this and I had none of that Mm. you know so it's kind of like for me it was a Manchester miracle (laughs) you know it really was I had nothing man except for who I was and what I believed. I just wanted to find more about the landmark poems and for people listening to the podcast, you may have seen these on sides of buildings over the country, but they started here in Manchester. So what are they and how did they come about? I mean, the most exciting landmark poem is the one on the side of Hardy's Well Pub because it's disappearing now. It's going to be gone forever soon. But that became a landmark and, it, and you, you can't make a landmark 
You can't say I'm going to establish a landmark now. You can't do it. Do you remember the <laughs> do you remember the big explosion outside of the new city stadium? Yeah. Do you remember that sculpture? It's gone. Nobody's missing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so even as big as it was, it mm-hmm. wasn't the landmark. Fact is, is probably the actual the actual uh, pitch is the landmark, isn't it? The actual yeah. structure of the thing. But but um um but but people chose that. They'd be like, it's near the pub with the poem on the side of it, or the poem yeah. with the pub on the side of it. You know, you turn right there, I'll meet you there. You know, and they would have a relationship with it as they come down that that uh, Oxford Road there, and um, and that that makes me proud that the people chose that. And Gemini is a good example of that as well. I'm really proud of that. And that was actually signed off by Richard Lease. We had to Sir Richard Lease. We had to yeah. get his permission for that. And um, so I'm proud that's of that for that reason. That's an amazing legacy. And then just talking about Oxford Road, you've been Chancellor of the University of Manchester, haven't you, since 2015. Have, yeah. You've made some major changes there. What have you enjoyed about what that? What have I been up to? Mm. Well, it's a ceremonial role, mine. So what am I proud of? I'm proud of the fact they support the Christmas dinners, which is for care leavers. I'm proud of the Equity and Merit Scholarship Scheme, which gets scholarships to students from around the world to come to Manchester. I'm proud very much so of being one of the few universities of this stature that is run by a a woman, which is um, not just any woman, actually, it's a scientist. Nancy Rothwell. Nancy, yeah. And I'm basically I'm proud to give degrees to students who've been studying there. How important do you think the University of Manchester is as an institution to kind of represent what Manchester's about? Oh, so much comes from the university and from the uh, Metropolitan University as yeah. well. So much talent goes sort of folds back into the city. You know, I think I think about Tom Bloxham, talking about my generation. You know, Tom Bloxham and how he's been part of the development of the city. And I think of the John Thompsons and Steve Coogans who went to Manchester Met, mm. you know, and Kathy Burks and the, there's just so many who've fed back into Manchester and then promoted Manchester around the world. You know, I don't think people have to stay in Manchester to be a part of Manchester. And I know that feels counterintuitive, but quite often our children will say well I want to live in Brisbane <laughs> yeah. and you know and we don't say we don't say to them oh no you've got to live in Manchester if you're from Manchester <laughs> do you know what I mean they they yeah. will go and they will experience the world but they take it with them Definitely. you don't sell it down the river you take it with <laughs> you you just heard Lem mention Tom Bloxham there as one of those people who've massively contributed towards its developments the city centre has been through tremendous change in the past 70 years Tom, as the CEO of Urban Splash, is one of the first people to recognise the potential of Manchester City Centre as a place to live. In 1999, Tom was awarded an MBE for services to architecture and urban regeneration. You'll hear him describe how when he first started out, the city was almost unrecognisable from the way it looks today. All the buildings are black. I mean, there was actually, you couldn't get anything to eat on a Sunday. The city was shut at nine o'clock at night. What did you think was going to make people want to come back into the city centre and live here? I mean, you're absolutely right, Lisa. The city was empty. Shutters literally came down at five o'clock at night. No one's around the city centre. 
And I suppose I've been lucky enough to do a bit of travelling in Europe, and I've been to America, and I've seen so in New York. And there are these amazing buildings in Manchester city centre, um, with high ceilings, big windows, great, you know, we knew they could make amazing loft apartments. And yet everyone was moving out. The Refuge Assurance Company had just moved out of their amazing mm. building into a you know, fairly average building in the suburbs. And we started thinking about it. And we realised, why did nobody live in the city centre? And as you go back 100 or 200 years, it was full of people living there and the richest people lived in the city centre of Manchester. But as the factories came and the smog mm. and the cheap workers... The rich people, if you like, the burghers of Manchester moved and they moved southwesterly by and large because of prevailing winds. And so first of all to Victoria Park, then to Wally Range, then to Didsbury, then to Wilmslow, then to Audley Edge. And you just saw this exodus in the city centre. But actually, those factories are now closed down. There was no smog. There were no more back-to-backs. And actually, Manchester was a great place to live, we thought. And so we started developing in Manchester and other regional cities and bringing some amazing architecture in and converting very cheaply. Remember the first building we did in Liverpool, actually, was Concert Square, and it cost us £27 a square foot to convert it. We sold it for £60 a square foot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the apartments were amazing value. In Manchester, we did Sally's Yard, we did Smithfield buildings, we did Britannia Mills, you know, and the early adopters were brave, Mm -hmm. but they really got the rewards because they've seen, you know, the value of their homes um, go up manyfold. Mm. I remember, I don't know what year it was, but we did the PR for the Grand Hotel and we actually had people camping out overnight on the streets to to get an apartment the next day. It was just, there was just so few, but they were absolutely stunning buildings, weren't they? Yep, yep. And do you think now, obviously, we've got a situation where the city centre is still very empty, given the whole issue of the pandemic. But I was amazed to find that actually lettings and sales in the city centre are stronger than ever. And we've got, I think at um, Deansgate Square, there will be the equivalent of the population of Hale living in those towers. So there's no slowdown, is there, on people wanting to live in the city and if they don't want to work in it just at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the residential market has been very strong in the city centre and we found both for sales and for rentals it's been really strong. I think the big mega trend is urbanisation. That's been going on throughout the world for many hundreds of years and is going to continue. And it stopped sort of in northern regional cities for a number of years because of the industrial revolution and the pollution. But now we're seeing more and more people come back to the city centres. The cities as we know them started with ancient Athens and they've survived ever since. They've survived the canals the railways, the telephone, the fax, the internet, the internal combustion engine, and they will survive COVID. And actually, people like to be in cities because we're fundamentally social breeds and we like to meet each other, we like to socialise, we like to bump into friends, we like to bump into ideas, to you know um, share ideas, while all the lawyers next to all the accountants in spinning fields because they meet each other in the coffee mm. shop and they <laughs> do a deal together or, you know, the surveyors meet Friday night in the pub and one buys, one sells. And we're all doing that. All the artists meet the scientists or whatever it might be there. It's that social life that we love and we need. So cities are far from dead. Cities are on a growth path. Mm. So do you think in 2021 we'll start to see that? Because we need people who are living here and people who are working here to get that kind of vibrant feel about it, don't we? Uh, definitely. I, I mean, to be, to be fair, I walk into the city every day. And the, you know, the city's still been full all the way through the crisis. Mm. People are walking around, they're mm. enjoying the green spaces in there. Um, they're getting out, getting takeaways, you know, and they can't eat inside. The city is a great place. Manchester's a resilient city. Mm. Um, you know, and of course, COVID's been a tragedy and you feel that everybody's been affected by it personally. But it will be. The, it, 
these things will pass. Mm. And ultimately, in the big path of history, it'll be a footnote and we'll get back on with our lives. One of the best ways to protect Manchester's future is to invest in its younger generations. Planting trees you'll never see is one of our values at Roland Dransfield. And one person who's definitely done that is Diane Medal, MBE. Diane was awarded that MBE for her services to sports and young people in the north of England. And you can hear how passionate she is about that. How do you feel that you've used your passion for sport to change lives over the years? There's an awful lot in there that, and it is obviously related to sport. Well, when my husband and I, Vicente, set up the charity in 2010, it was for one reason and one reason only. It was to provide an opportunity for those young people growing up in social deprivation to fulfil their potential. What we understood was that talent, potential is everywhere, but opportunity is not. So giving back for us wasn't even a discussion. It was, we can see there is a need. How can I and how can we use our experiences as a coach, me as a now retired athlete, to look at what were the challenges that Diane faced as a kid, trying to make her way through this journey of winning gold medals? And when we reflected on that, the same challenges that I was facing still existed and still exist today. So things like the costs of training. So not only have you got to be able to afford a membership fee uh, at a running club, but you've got to pay a subscription, an annual subscription. Uh, kit is expensive, spikes, yeah. trainers, tracksuit, running vest, running shorts and tights. Um, there was also that aspect of uh, how do you get from where you live to where the facilities are where the running track is for me I had to take two buses eventually when my mum allowed me to do that to get from Longsight to Sale Harriers but more importantly and above all that a lot of young people because of the postcodes and where they live don't have the confidence in the first place yeah. to put themselves forward. So what we wanted to do was to go into areas where we know potential is there, but allow that potential to thrive. And that's become your kind of why, I suppose, now, hasn't it? Yeah, very much so. M my why is really about... It's, it's, it's relatively frustrating, really, because... When I work with and, and my team work with um, schools and community groups and wherever young people are, I listen and, and understand firsthand what they are going through, what they're enduring. Just to be stood in front of me is a big challenge uh, just to get to that point. So when I'm looking at them, I'm seeing my 11-year-old self. Yeah. I'm seeing that young girl who um, didn't even know what was available to her. No aspiration, no ambition and no goal. And I think what we want to do is to be able to say, who are you as a young person? It's great to meet you today, but where are you headed? What plans have you got for yourself? And how can I and my team help you get there? And do you think those children have ever been asked that question? before? 
That's an interesting one. Um, what they say to us is people don't listen. A big one is people don't understand what we're going through. Because I'm a parent myself and I am no different than anyone else saying, clean your room, mm. get home on time, put your phone down, what you're watching, where you're going, who you're hanging out with. And the same with teachers, get your homework in, where's your tie? Where's your ruler? You're on detention or whatever. So as a young person, when you're always being dictated to and you're being prescribed what's going to happen next, we do forget to listen and therefore we don't really understand what's going on in that young person's life. Um, and that's really important and it's all we can do. So by asking the question, where are we headed and how can we help you get there is really an important one. And do they have an immediate answer or is that is that just kind of encourages them to start thinking about it? Um, a lot will say, I want to be the next Usain Bolt. I want to be the next Jess Ennis or, uh, you know, I don't know, Kelly Holmes. Some will say, I hope sport works out for me. Like Samuel, for example. Samuel was 11 years, years old when he got involved in our organisation. And I always remember what he said. He said, I hope sport works out for me. But what I really want to be is a revolutionary. And I'm looking back at Sam thinking, what do you mean? Please enlighten me. Give me some clarity. And he said, I want to be someone who changes the world. Wow. Uh, just a few months ago, Samuel stood up and spoke in front of an audience of 300 people and talked about how he had gone to the UN in, in New York, in America, and spoken about his ambition to make a difference. A young boy growing up in Manchester, went to Manchester Academy in Mosside, started within our foundation and is now, I would say, changing the world just by his words. My most recent guest on We Built This City was peace promoter Fegan Murray, who tragically lost her son, Martin Hertz, in the 2017 arena attack. Fegan has been working to enact the Protect Duty Bill, which had previously been called Martin's Law. You'll hear why she felt compelled to do this after going out in Manchester for the first time after she lost Martin. Simultaneously, I also started campaigning for Martin's Law. And that was literally, so the first year we were in Cloud Cuckoo London grieving anyway. The second year on Father's Day, some of my kids bought my husband some concert tickets for one of his favourite singers. Um, won't name her, she's not my cup of tea, don't want to embarrass her. <laughs> okay. But he, my husband loves her. So off we went early December to Manchester properly for the first time in an evening. And I remember getting ready and taking my tiniest handbag to make the bag search easy. And um, uh, went to Manchester, got there. My husband took his wallet out, got his tickets out. We walked in and nobody even looked at our entry tickets, never mind security. So we sat in the concert listening to the songs and I, I burst out crying. And he looked at me and said, it's the songs, isn't it? And I said... I'm not even listening to the concert, sorry. Why are you crying then? Because there was no security. Nobody checked my bag. It's not right. Anyone could have walked in. And so that was early December 2019. And I, I chewed over this heavily over Christmas and New Year and did a bit of research, realised that actually from my research that 
menus, the security at venues is only a recommendation. It's not a legal requirement. And I thought this just can't be, not after what happened in Manchester. This has to change. And by the, towards February, I started a public, uh, a government petition. I didn't go the change.org route. I went the government petition route because I wanted the government's support. And government petitions run for six months and then they finish. Um, And um, my petition with lots and lots and lots, incredibly much prompting on Twitter, um, slowly within the six months crawled up to 23,500 signatures. Now that may sound a lot to some people, but it actually isn't because halfway through my petition, two other ones sprung up from nowhere and they overtook me by the hundreds of thousands in in two, three weeks' time, never mind six months. And one of them was Bring Back the Jeremy Kyle Show. The other one was people struggling, sucking up milkshake with paper straws, and they wanted a petition for bringing back plastic straws for McDonald's. And they, they were the two petitions I was competing against. And whilst some people, when I tell them that story, they say, that's incredible, or they laugh about it, that's ridiculous, they say. Yeah, it is laughable and ridiculous, but on the serious side, it made me stand back and realise that actually the general public haven't got a clue about security. They haven't got a clue that they're actually not safe when they go to concerts or football matches or anywhere else, because there's no legal requirement for them to be kept safe. And any security that might be out there may be okay or good if a venue is very conscientious or it could be hardly negligible. So, um, but as a general public, we don't know that. Mm-hmm. And the other day I was funny enough at a school and there was a um, a 12-year-old boy when I said public safety is only a recommendation it's not normally what I talk to the children about, but the tutors, the teacher asked me about Martin's Law, so I explained it. And this 12-year-old boy suddenly lifts his hand and says, that's incredible, I can't believe that is not a thing. That's not right. And that's a 12-year-old boy saying that. Mm-hmm. But there we are, that's, that's what it is. So Martin's Law is now at a point where I am in the final stages of meeting with government. Uh, I have another Zoom call, the Teams call this week to update me about where the legislation is. It's going to become legislation very soon. They're just finalising the final points. And what will that mean when that becomes legislation? Yeah, it will mean that at venues, at any place where a large crowd can gather, mm-hmm. be that a pop concert festival, a big restaurant, a huge big cafe or pubs, um, nightclubs, anything like that, there has to be security by law. Fegan was recognised for her work towards the Protect Duty Bill in 2021 when she's awarded the OBE for her services to counter-terrorism. As you'll hear, she couldn't believe it when she heard the news. I feel incredibly honoured, very, very humbled and touched. Uh, I have no idea who recommended me for that. Embarrassed is maybe the wrong word. I feel a bit... um, puzzled as to why anybody would want to give me that award. I'm obviously very positively surprised, feel really, really honoured. 
but incredibly humbled. <laughs> and you've got no idea who put you forward. I've no idea. And I can't thank people because I don't know who they were. Oh. So it's really awkward, you know. So, um, But it came as a total surprise, yeah. definitely. But it's so clear that your purpose has become what it is now, you know, after another career, hasn't it? It's kind of, do you feel that, that you're driven to yeah, I educate? Mean, you know, I didn't uh, seek out to mm. to develop my life into another career. It sort of kind of yeah. happened. But, you know, I, I lost, like you said at the beginning, I lost my professional mm. identity completely in that one split, split mm. second, the bomb exploded. That that was my career completely gone. I literally had to reinvent myself from yeah. scratch. And I have no idea where my future goes, but, I, you know, I don't think too far ahead. I just feel there's a job to be done with Martin's Law. There's a job to be done with the young people. There's a job to be done to improve security everywhere. And those are the things I'm going with, and I just take one day at a time. Yeah. It's humbling to think of the impact that all of these greater Mancunians have had not just across the city region, but the country too. They've more than helped build the city through their service. I have no doubt that many more Greater Mancunians will continue to be recognised for leading change and creating ripple effects of positivity throughout the city region. We Built the City will be back on the 16th of June with Will Lees-Jones, who's the Managing Director of the brewery JW Lees. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk. Or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you.